So last week I was at um, Auskick, because Leo does Auskick, our five-year-old, and that's down at the Edinburgh Gardens, the Brunswick Street Oval. And it was the last week of Auskick for, for the year. And um, at the end of the game, there was a, um, like a nostalgia football match between the Fitzroy Football Club and uh, the old Scotch College boys. And the thing that I discovered, which I didn't know, was that the Fitzroy Football Club that meets at the Brunswick Street Oval is actually the same Fitzroy Football Club that used to play for the AFL and the VFL, in that the club moved from the VFL into the AFL for you know, the time that the AFL, from when it started. And then when in 1996, in August 96, when after Fitzroy had lost all its money and the AFL gave up on them, they had their last game at the MCG. And then the Fitzroy Football Club didn't actually close down altogether, it just moved into a different league. And so there's all these diehards that were there and they were, it was like it was the VFL in, in the 1960s and they had their old banners up and stuff. And I grew up barracking for Fitzroy. So for me, I had my heart was warmed and it was a little bit of a taste of, of, of what it was like when I was a kid in the 80s. I grew up being a passionate Fitzroy supporter. When I was born, my auntie Ruth gave me a full-size pair of Fitzroy football socks <laughs> for me as a boy. But when the team closed, I, I didn't know what to do. I couldn't go to the Brisbane Lions. I couldn't go to the, um, you know, the, the, the uh, sorry, the Brisbane Bears and then the Brisbane Lions. I, I just didn't, it just didn't feel the same for me. So basically for 20 years, I didn't have a team. Um, and then Leo decided this year he'd back for the Bulldogs. So I'm, I'm reluctantly going to the Bulldogs, but it feels like I'm changing religion. You know, like I feel a sense of betrayal when I do it. And when I was at the Fitzroy Football Club, I thought, yeah, this is my true home anywhere. The thing is in, in Melbourne, in Australia, we're so loyal to our um, football teams. It's, it's like, it is like a religion. The same is not true though for the Christian faith. Uh, people will give up their Christian faith a lot quicker than they would ever give up their football team. Uh, it's seen as heresy to give up your football team. It's seen as kind of a, a rite of passage to give up your faith in Australia. Um, in my time as a Christian minister, I've seen lots and lots of people give up their faith. The stat is in the, in the Western world, people who become Christians in their teen years, 82% of them lose their faith during the uni years. So if you've been a Christian long enough, you'll know about 82% of your Christian friends may not be Christians anymore if, 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 it was in, if you were a Christian as a teenager. And I've talked about this a few times as we've looked at the book of Hebrews because it's kind of a theme about you know, lasting as a Christian. This morning, this passage offers actually some suggestions for how you can keep going in your faith, how you stay committed, how you last to the end. How you stay strong, you don't give up. Now, in the passage from last week, uh, the point was that you can trust in Jesus because he's the most qualified and the most experienced to be your great high priest, your mediator between you and God. He's the most experienced and the most qualified to, to provide sacrifice to give you uh, forgiveness for your sins, the sacrifice being himself, the perfect sacrifice. And this week, uh, uh, the passage moves from saying you can last a distance by by relying on him to looking at your role or our role as people in uh, this journey. How can we, what do we have to do? And there's a whole lot of warnings. As Diana said before she read the passage, this is one of the most controversial bits in the Bible. So let's have a look what it says. Well, the first suggestion that we get in the first chunk 
of the passage, you want to look at it, um, starting in uh, chapter 5, verse 11. The point here is simple. Apply the word of God to your life. That's the suggestion. Let's just unpack it. So this is a recommendation. If you want to not just survive as a Christian, but mature as a Christian, develop, then apply the word of God to your life. The Christians in the church that the writer to the Hebrews was writing to were uh, not mature in their faith. Um, It says in in verse 11 to chapter 6, verse 3, he accuses them of being like having arrested development in their faith. He says, you should be mature by now, but you're not. You're like baby Christians. And he uses the metaphor of a diet to explain himself. He's just explained this really sophisticated idea that Jesus is like a king priest in the order of the ancient king priest Melchizedek, who appears in Genesis 14, who uh, blessed Abraham Abraham, and did not die. He's an eternal priest king. Jesus is the eternal priest king, the ultimate eternal priest king. Um, And let's, let's be clear, the idea of Jesus being a priest in the order of Melchizedek is one of those out there ideas and a lot of theologians look at it and go, whoa, and blows their mind. But it is a very helpful thing for us to understand. But what the writer to the Hebrews says about uh, this, while he is clear in his explanation, he says to the Christians listening to, to reading the letter, he says, we have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer even try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers of this kind of stuff, you should be able to teach about Melchizedek and these complex ideas. Uh, In fact, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word over and over again. You need milk, not solid food. Now this metaphor of milk and meat is a theme in the New Testament. It comes up a few times. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it's, Peter says to brand new Christians to, to be nourished by pure spiritual milk. And he's saying this in a positive way. It's a good thing. you know. Um, learn the foundations of your faith to, to beginner Christians. And this will set you well in your journey as a Christian. But in the, in the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians, being a milk drinker is seen as a bad thing. Uh, it's a criticism. Um, because for those Christians who have been a Christians for a long time in the church, they should by now develop their diet, their spiritual diet. And he says, you guys look spiritual. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. You look spiritual. You say you're spiritual, but you're not spiritual. Why? Because you cause factions in the church and you're creating division. And so, in fact, you're baby Christians. We should treat you as babies. You need to be fed on milk, not meat. And just as Melchizedek was much too much for the, he- the church that the letter of the Hebrews is written to, Paul says that there is a further wisdom to be given to the spiritually mature Christians in Corinth. There's stuff for the mature Christians in your church, but most of you won't get the hidden wisdom that is a mystery, in a mystery, it says in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 7. The Corinthians will not be able to assimilate this meat until they've grown up some more. And it's... What we've got to be clear about is it's not grown up in knowledge as in you've got to become professors, but it's in, in how you live out your faith. See, this is not a knowledge test. The thing we learn about the milk and meat metaphor from the New Testament that we often get wrong is that 
Paul in the letter, writer to the letter to the Hebrews and the Apostle Peter as well, they're not saying meat, spiritual meat eaters are more intelligent and more knowledgeable. You're not a beginner baby Christian because you don't know your Bible very well, although that might be true. Rather, you are a beginner baby Christian who needs milk because you haven't put what you know into practice. Like James says, um, you're a hearer of the word, but you're not a doer. True, mature Christians are doers of the word. It's a difference between knowing and doing. You can intellectually know a lot as a Christian about what the Bible says, but if you're not applying it, you're like a know-all a Noel teenager, for example, sorry, the teenagers in the room, who thinks that they're mature. That was what I was like when I was in high school. I thought I was so mature because I wore black skibbies, you know, because um, I hung around with uni students in the orchestra and I thought I was so mature. You, and, you, and you think, oh, I'm smart. I, you, know, I, you know, I watch uh, art house films. I must be so mature. But really, you lack wisdom. You, you lack life experience. And so you're not really a mature adult, are you? You're just a teenager who is a know-all. Same thing happens in the Christian faith. You, you can know the basics, for example, of, of what um, the standards of Christian sexual ethics are, but if you don't put it into practice, it's just intellectual knowledge. It's not, you're not living it out. Why? Because maybe you think you're above it. You can know the basics of financial ethics. You can know that uh, Christians should um, be generous to others and uh, should be above reproach and should um, tithe to their church. Um, But then if you don't do it, that's not a sign of a mature Christian, is it? Um, It's just a sign of somebody who knows some information. You can know the basics of Christian love, that you need to be other person-centred, that you need to be a servant like Christ. But if this is not a huge priority for you, then you haven't really got it, have you? There's a difference between knowing the truth and living it out, and that's the difference between immaturity and maturity. Even the demons know that Jesus is the Son of God, but then they don't bow down and worship him, do they? Maturity in faith is not about gaining more knowledge. Knowledge is a good thing, but that's not what it is. It's actually about aligning the heart with the mind. You know something to be true in your mind, and then you know it to be true in your heart, and so you live it out. Immature Christians can often resist hard truths, because it actually doesn't align with their heart's desire. And that's perhaps what's going on in this passage, the the extended wider passage. Perhaps the Jewish Christians are being taught about Jesus as the great high priest because they don't like the idea of of Jesus actually changing their religion. Maybe they love the history of their Jewish faith and the the priesthood and, and the sacrificial system and they don't like the new change Christianity is such a hard religion for for the Jews because uh, Jewish religion is so um, tactile and you can do stuff and you can make sacrifice and you can see the results. Whereas the Christian faith, you hand it all over to Jesus and he does it for you and you don't perform anything anymore to be forgiven and to to exercise your faith in in that same sense. They didn't want to change to that. They were resisting that change. So the writer to the Hebrews is teaching all this. Now, you might think that the writer to the Hebrews should instruct these immature Christians to go back to basics. You might think he'd say, you're baby Christians, you need to go back to the milk. You're not ready to understand the teaching about Melchizedek, etc., etc. You're too immature. You might think he'd say that. But instead, almost in a surprising turn of events, he says, move on, come on. 
Get on with things. Move on from talking about the basics over and over again. In chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, it shows us what they were stuck on. The elementary teachings about Christ, that is the Son of God, probably, and that is the Messiah that provides salvation, that he was born, lived and died, rose and ascended, his basic teachings. It says um, they were stuck on how repentance from sin and forgiveness works, what faith in God looks like, baptism, or uses the phrase cleansing rites, laying on of hands and prayer. This kept talking about it over and over again. The resurrection from the dead and what happens to Christians after death what eternal, eternal judgment and hell are like. Now, these are the elementary teachings for them. Uh, it's not suggesting here that this is what all Christians begin with, but for this Jewish Christian church, that's what their foundation of their faith was. And he's saying, move on. He's not saying these things aren't important. He's not saying you can sort of leave that behind and forget about it. He's just saying you need to build on all this stuff. You need to start applying it to your life and you can't just keep talking about it again and again. Don't keep laying the foundations over and over. Ben Crosby, who I can't see in the room, but anyway, Ben Crosby, who's in our church, is a builder. Now, when Ben builds a house, can you imagine, like, if he, you know, if, if, if people are who said, can you build our house, Ben? And they paid him the money. He rocked up with all these builders and the, the concrete truck arrived and the digger and they dug the big hole and then they laid the concrete slab, which was really important because a concrete slab holds the house up, you know, and it's got to be level and, you know, it stops all kinds of water, the water coming up and there's all kinds of things. But they, that, that week after week, all he was doing was adjusting the concrete slab, you know. I mean, it would be a very amazing concrete slab but there's no house on top, is there? This is the same for the Christian faith. Lay the foundations and build on it. Now, if you're an adult who is here and you've been a Christian for a while and you're perpetually sitting on the fence in your Christian faith, this text applies to you. You are effectively stuck like they were, working through the rudimentary principles of the Christian faith over and over. Your experience of the Christian life and church, it won't be satisfactory because you're not applying the basics. So when we go on and talk about other things, it will seem irrelevant to you and you'll get bored. In the same way that they said, I, you know, that teaching, um, when, I, when I was at school, um, and they were trying to get everyone to stop smoking because when I was at school, lots of people smoked in school. Um, they learnt that teaching teenagers that um, smoking leads to lung cancer and you'll die is a not effective way to teach a teenager because teenagers, um, some teenagers who are immature, not many are immature, but some who are immature go, I'm never going to die, so this doesn't apply to me. See, uh, this same problem can happen to the immature Christian. You think, this doesn't apply to me, I don't have to listen. That's what arrested development ha does for the Christian who's immature. But the problem is the immature Christian will one day face a huge crisis of suffering or temptation. And either this crisis will push them forward into greater maturity because they'll be forced to process things or they'll give it up because it'll be too tough. So, how do you keep going in your faith and grow and stay strong and not give up? This part of the passage is saying... If you're at the beginning of your journey, if you're working out your faith now, 
or if you've just become a Christian, it is good to start with the foundations and the milk. It's not saying milk is bad. It's just saying for, tw- you know, for the next 10 years, if you keep laying this foundation over and over again, there's so much more, there's so much more richness and intricate and detail of the Christian faith. So work through the basics of the Christian faith. Perhaps you could meet with me. You could, you could ring me up or talk to me at, at the end of church or... And I'm happy to meet with you, or you could find another mentor and do the same thing and um, work through the basics of the Christian faith. You could read a good book, um, Simply Christianity by John Dixon will get you started as an Aussie. Um, Knowing God by J.O. Packer is another one. You you should get baptised if if you're at the beginning. That's all the sort of foundational things you do, and that's good. That's if you're a beginner Christian. But most importantly, as you learn these foundational things, then apply it. It's not a learning, just a, about an intellectual exercise. It's an application exercise. But for those of you who have been a Christian for a long time and suspect that you might be stuck and not growing, then make a decision to be in the faith or not in the faith. Are you committing to Jesus or not? You don't need more basic teaching. You need just to start living it out. Apply the word of God to your life. Be accountable to someone. Write down some clear decisions you want to make about action, about putting it into action. You've got to want to want to do it. All right. The second idea from the passage is where it gets controversial. And the idea is you've got to have a healthy fear of the consequence of giving up. Listen to the warning, verse 4 of chapter 6. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. Now what's tricky about these words is that we do often see people give up their faith and then come back. So, But this passage is saying it's impossible for them to come back, but we see people who do come back. And not only that, but some of the key teachings of Jesus are famously about coming back, like, the, uh, the parable of the lost sheep or the lost coin, the prodigal son, is all about going away and coming back. So what does this mean? We have to think partly about, we have to separate genuine faith from an, uh, not real faith, from um, faith that's not genuine. And, and what the passage is saying is that genuine faith is faith that actually persevere, perseveres. In the practical experience of the church, we see many people who get to share in the life of the church community. They get to draw the benefits of it. And one day, for whatever reason, they deliberately reject Christ. And these kind of people are very difficult to bring back. It's as if they've had a little taste of Christianity and that's inoculated them. It's given them immunity against Christianity. Now, in Jesus' parable of the sower, he talks a little bit about this. The sower scatters the seed and some falls on healthy ground and some falls on rocky ground. And there's more to the parable than that. But the point is, for a while, the plants grow up and they look the same. And then one thrives and the other one withers away. And suddenly with time, you can see that occur. These, are, these Christians that have fallen away have seemed to have had a decent experience. I mean, in the passage, it says things like they've been enlightened. They've possibly responded to the message of the gospel. 
They've tasted the heavenly gift. Perhaps that is talking about, you know, the experience of the Christian community. They've been partakers of the Holy Spirit. Maybe they've seen the impact of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian community. I don't think it means they've been eternally transformed by the Holy Spirit, because if they were, they would persist. Um, they've, they've, had exp- they've experienced the goodness of God's word and the powers of the age to come, it says. I mean, possibly they've been doing ministry and, and really on board with Christ. But then remember what Jesus says about what will happen on Judgment Day, that there'll be some people who'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name only to hear the response from Jesus, I never knew you, depart from me, you evildoers. Very strong words. So what are we saying? It's actually possible to have a fairly full experience of the Christian life, this is what the passage is saying, and not actually then persist with your faith to actually reject it. What do we do with this passage? We can't underplay it and we can't overplay it. We can't underplay it and think it doesn't really apply to us. It's a real warning. People do give up pursuing their Christian faith. This is our experience at the church, as I said, the 82% stat. People do taste the blessings of the Christian community and the Christian life and then reject it. So it's a real thing that can occur. But then overplaying this can be a mistake too. It can lead us to thinking that having periods of doubt or messing up in our sin or struggling for a long period will mean that we can never come back to Jesus. And that would be overplaying this passage. But also, is our faith secure? Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, 38 to 39. I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. But then Hebrews 6, part of it seems to suggest that there is something that can cause us to lose our security, doesn't it? Isn't it sort of saying you can be the one that separates you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? So what's it saying? Well, earlier this year, I went to a lecture by um, a Baptist uh, theologian called Tom Schreiner. And he lectured on this very passage. And he explained it a bit like this. He says, how can, how can a person who has security in God's love, who's, who's actually converted to Christianity, how do we apply this passage to them? Because we need to think about that. Is it really true that nothing can separate us from the love of God? Or is what Hebrews is saying, something can separate us? And he did that thing of distinguishing between true and false faith, like the way Jesus does in the parable of the sower. Then he said, this passage is a form of encouragement, actually, strangely enough, to keep going for the Christian who feels like giving up. It's like the parent who says to their VCE student, if you don't study, you will not get into the uni course you want to get into, you won't get the job you want, and your life is going to be a failure. Sorry to point in your general direction. <laughs> so, and, and the thing is, 
you know, it probably it's a complete exaggeration what the parents are saying. But um, it's to f- put fear into their, into their year 12 teenage students, uh, you know, um, hearts so that they'll study. Um, it, the parent doesn't necessarily think their life's going to be a failure, do they? Um, it's like when I'm, in the, when I'm doing my personal training with the, with the trainer in the gym and, I, and he's making me do bear crawls up and down that room and I'm, I'm like sweating blood and then he says, if you don't beat me to the, to the end, I'll make you do two more. You know, he's putting fear into me of what the consequences are of giving up. He pushes me. And, and, and Thomas Shiner thinks this is what the writer to the Hebrews is actually doing to, to the people in the church. He's not saying... He's saying that there will be people in your community that don't have genuine faith. But to those of you who do have genuine faith, keep going because the consequences of losing your faith is huge. And he actually says this in the passage. Um, the consequ- well, the consequences of rejecting Christ is verse 6. To their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. In other words, instead of having a faith that identifies with the Christ that dies on the cross and provides forgiveness of sins, you now give up and you identify with the people who put Christ on the cross. You're the ones putting him up there. You're you're on their side now. These people, the passage says, are spiritually unfruitful. Look at verse 7 and 8. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is um, farmed, receives the blessing of God. That's good, isn't it? But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. That's an image of judgment, isn't it? Like the parable of the sower, this agricultural illustration describes a consequence for those who do not bear the fruit of faith. They are cursed, they will be judged. So Tom Schreiner, this Baptist theologian that I heard, and I, and I agree with him, he, he says that he, he gets this idea that it's pushing you forward through you know, as a, as a Christian who's secure in your faith just to keep going. And then the passage actually affirms this. Look at chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. Now, even though we speak like this, he says, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. The things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love that you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. God is good. God is loving, God is righteous, he cares for you, he wants you to thrive. If you are with Christ, your faith is secure. And here we see why we have just had the stark warning before. Look at verse 11. We, we, we want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realised, so that you get there. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So how do you keep going? How do you keep going in your faith? Well, you have a healthy fear of the consequence of rejecting Christ. You don't want to identify with those who put him up on the cross. You want to identify with the people for whom he got on the cross for. Don't risk your own judgment. Or to think of the passage more fully now, you keep going in your faith by applying the word, word of God to your life and have it, having a healthy fear of the consequences of giving up. And lastly, and this is a quick point, to be encouraged and secure in God's faithfulness. Verses 13 to 20 looks at this. The writer to the Hebrews points to God's covenant 
to Abraham where he said, Abraham, where he said, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. Abraham did receive God's blessings. He waited patiently, patiently and God delivered. Look at verse 18b. And we should have hope in the God who keeps his promises. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So he can do it. God will protect your salvation. He will keep you secure. Let me finish. What's going on here? This is a classic thing in Christian teaching, right? Sometimes, often, you get God's perspective and our perspective. And it's important to know know how both perspectives work. But they often seem quite different. That's how a lot of our understanding works. So our human, of ex- uh, human experience of the Christian life tells us that in our experience, people who look like Christians fall away, and that's a serious thing, right? So you don't want to be like that. But we are also given God's perspective, which is he is faithful and just and looking down on the world and sees you and your Christian faith, if you're a Christian, and he will protect you and he will fight for you And there's nothing that can separate you from his love. But we live in our experience, so we need to exercise our faith in our experience, don't we? The same thing works with prayer, doesn't it? Why should we pray? God already knows what we're going to pray. What's the point? Because the Bible says this is how life works in our experience. We pray and God hears our prayers and answers our prayers. So pray. Why evangelize? Why why tell people about Jesus? Doesn't God already know who, who the Christians are and who are not? He he works it out, doesn't he? No, the Bible says in your experience, in your life, the way it works is that you tell people about Jesus and they will become Christians, even though God is looking down from, from on high, metaphorically speaking. Our experience and God's experience are quite different things. And it's important for us to know and have hope in what God sees, but to also be driven by our experience in this world. So how do you keep going in your Christian faith? And not give up and how do you mature and grow if you apply the word of god to your life you will grow and mature and persist have a healthy fear of the consequence of giving up and if you remember god's perspective that he's just and loving and righteous and faithful then you will run in joy to the finish line let's pray look god it's a massive passage um, and uh important and so like much to digest and we pray that you can help us be encouraged by this. Amen.